To know where the internet is going, you have to know where it's been. Every episode will examine the sites, terms, and personalities that have defined the online world. So strap on your chrono belts, time cadets. It's time to take a trip to the Old Wide Web. Episode 7. So long. Thanks for all the memes. Hi, I'm Bill Meeks, and welcome to another episode of the Old Wide Web. I'm here to teach you the history of the internet. Whether you're a newbie or an old tech head, I'm going to give you an overview of how the internet evolved into what it is today. Now, just a warning, we try and keep it clean here on the Old Wide Web, but sometimes history is a little bit naughty, a little off color. I'd say even childishly indecent. There won't be any cursing or anything, but we will be using a Frank Junior High term for a certain aspect of the male anatomy. If this offends you, I apologize, and I'd suggest you fast-forward about 15 minutes to listen to our tribute to Douglas Adams. I'll give you a few seconds to do that. Still with us? Great. Now let's find out about the secret origin of one of the first internet memes. Yes, this week we'll be talking about Mr. T Ate My Balls. So open up MS Paint and get ready to learn all about it. what an internet meme is, right? Think Lolcat, Sag Keanu Reeves, Comeback Steve, Rage Comics, etc. Basically, these image-based memes start with a blank canvas of an image and users add their own creative text to make a joke. While memes are more popular today than ever, they actually got their start in the late 90s when the internet was still relatively new for a lot of people. Possibly the first, but definitely the most notorious, was the Ate My Balls meme. If you've never heard about the Ate My Balls meme, it was created by then-college student Neil Patel on his college web server. I got the chance to talk with him about it, and here's how he describes it for someone who's never seen it before. We pull down some pictures from the internet, either from TV shows or scans of comic books or whatever, and drew our own little thought bubbles and captions in them. You know, one of them, Mr. T, looks like he's thinking about something. He says, I sure could go for some balls right now. Uh, and then another one, you know, where he's attacking somebody, he's saying, give me your balls, fool. Like most strokes of offensive brilliance, it all got started when a couple of kids got bored. So where I was when we were putting this together, you know, I was my first year at school uh, living in a dorm, right? It was kind of like Lord of the Flies. We were all a bunch of guys, you know, freshmen, sophomores, living, you know, in the, on the same floor, and uh, things would tend to get a little crazy as uh, exams come around and people need a break and whatnot. And um, so I guess at one point somebody was tossing a football around and hit the exit sign on, on our floor and realized that there's a little flap there, you can take the glass out. And so that's when uh, somebody pulled that down, scratched off the exit sign, and drew on there, you know, Mr. T ate my balls. And then from there, it just kind of snowballed. We started seeing drawings on everybody, you know, different people's whiteboards and, you know, little scenes of somebody sitting at a table eating some Mr. T ate my balls cereal and so on. And just total total random happenstance that somebody would have thought of that and drawn that up. 
atavistic mayhem is really where it grew from. But things are seldomly created in a vacuum, and the quickly growing internet provided a large amount of inspiration for Patel. Some of my favorite sites at that time, I can't really remember a lot of them. One of the ones that does stick out was the uh, Beavis and Butthead Encyclopedia. Um, not sure if you've seen that one before. It was a uh, website where, you know, Beavis and Butthead was a popular MTV cartoon at the time, and they had this online dictionary, basically, or an encyclopedia with the different different words and their own little articles and explanations about each one. You know, that's kind of the stuff that I spent most of my time browsing around for on the internet was just silly comic kind of stuff. Whatever. Yahoo was real popular at the time for, you know, it was as far as getting news and uh, information about uh, stocks and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that was pretty much the place to go at the time. Mr. T ate my balls was a pretty funny idea, but no idea is any good without decent execution. Neil, tell us a little bit about the making and publishing of the site. So as far as making and publishing the site, um, you know, students at our school had Unix accounts where, you know, they showed us how to create our own web pages or our home page uh, in our own home directories. And um, so I had my home page and then, you know, created this as a sub page below that. Um, and really, it, it involved me and another guy sitting around one night and just finding pictures of Mr. T on the, on the internet and saying, hey, we could make a, we could make a web page out of this. Well, why not do it? You know, let's play around with it a little bit. And uh, we pulled out PaintShop Pro and, you know, coded up some HTML and put this stuff on there. And that's pretty much where it was. I think I still have all the original code for it and the content, and, or it's somewhere in the Internet Wayback Machine. And I could probably just pull it out of there if I really wanted to start it up again. It's always nice to hear that somebody has a good backup strategy, but the largest backup of the site is in the minds of the people who got to see it when the site went live. But how did it go from a small joke among friends to one of the most famous humor sites of the early internet? So after we first put together the site, you know, this, this was back in the days where the, quote, search engines were really internet directories. So you would submit a URL to the particular site like Yahoo, give it a category and so on. And that's essentially what we did was we submitted it to a bunch of different search engines and it kind of grew from there. I guess people randomly stumbled across it and then people started to create their own. You know, I think at one point in the Yahoo listing, there were over 200 Ate My Balls web pages in there and there was an internet, uh, Ate My Balls web ring and, and so on. And it was really kind of amazing how this all kind of grew. You know, when I first put it up, right, I, I had my email address on there so people could send me emails and comment on it. And I got some some little nasty grams and so on from people and uh, other people, you know, were commending us on our on our on the humor. And what I would do is I would print out each of these emails and kind of tape it up onto my door. And I think I had about half my door covered at one point. So it was really kind of interesting to just watch it grow from really uh, an evening or a late night project with another buddy to what a couple hundred people out there must have thought was hilarious and, and created their own. But this was hosted on your college's servers, right? Was there any sort of backlash from the administration? You know, for as popular as the site supposedly was, I don't recall ever having a run-in with uh, network administration folks or anyone at school 
Um, I'm honestly, I don't even know if they really knew about it. They, I never got an email from, you know, some sysadmin or anything like that. And, you know, this is probably because in a large part, this, a lot of this stuff wasn't even regulated yet, uh, or they didn't necessarily monitor every little thing that people do the way schools and institutions might do now. So we kind of were able to get by and go somewhat unnoticed or if people noticed it, they, they chuckled and they looked the other way. But the concept of ball eating didn't stop with Patel's sites. Dozens of sites sprang up featuring characters like Kenny from South Park, Hillary Clinton, and Homer Simpson. Neil, how did you feel about all the copycats? You know, as far as people creating their own 8MyBall sites, I thought it was uh, pretty amazing. You know, I thought it was, it, it was really kind of funny to see something that we created grow so large. You know, some of them were good, some of them were and rather poor taste uh but it was it was hilarious it was it was amazing to see something like that just grow mr t ate my balls is still available on the wayback machine and i've linked to it in the show notes by the way but it's been offline now for quite a while mr t ate my balls went offline probably a couple years after i graduated from school Uh, it definitely went down off of the the school servers uh, because my account went away when i shortly after i left school I think I transferred it to GeoCities, and then I had it hosted on my own website or on my own server at home for a while. But as I, you know, take down and reconfigure my web server for my own website, at some point I just forgot to bring Mr. T back online, and I guess it just stayed that way. Are you ever curious what happens to proto-internet celebrities like Neil after their 15 minutes of fame are up? Where is Neil now, and what new developments in internet memory have caught his attention over the years? So some of my favorite memes, um, well, the one that really stands out is the Mahir Kagri, I Kiss You Guy. Um, That one was rather humorous. You know, I remember the all your base are belong to us. You know, nowadays there's so many little random things that pop up on the Internet. I can't even keep track of of everything and I, I'm probably I probably missed about a decade's worth of them too so uh, but yeah Mahir was just funny because it was kind of like a uh, it was online sort of personal ad or, or whatever you want to call it uh, it was just kind of funny that somebody would post that and, and, and set it all up so the, the involvement in the site hasn't really followed me around per se. Um, my brother-in-law, when he found out what it was, he was bragging to all of his friends. Uh, and, and, you know, some other people would, would bring it up from time to time. And that's pretty much been about it. You know, never really comes up at a job interview or anything like that. And I would probably prefer it stays that way since uh, I'm a corporate drone now, working at a tech company, you know, managing a team of engineers. Being in a leadership position, this is probably not something that you want to be the uh, the thing people know you for. Though, um, so, you know, it is, it is kind of funny in that, uh, you know, you would think that somebody in a management position would come up with this. But, you know, when you're at work and you have to be professional, it's not something you really want brought up. You know, I've been doing this for about six months. Before that, I was a technical lead and an engineer. In school, I was studying computer engineering, and I, I, that's how I got into the web page creation and all that. And I, I still do some web projects and stuff on the side, uh, but this is more on the computer design and engineering side of stuff. Mr. T Ate My Balls, while not exactly family-friendly, was one of the first examples of the viral nature of the Internet. 
What started as a college prank grew into a comedic movement across the world and inspired a ton of rip-off and original humorous sites. So next time you're chuckling at that latest lolcat or rage comic, take a moment and thank Neil Patel, internet meme pioneer. No balls were harmed in the making of this story, we promise. Meek's Mixed Media offers video, animation, web design and programming, motion graphics. If you have a project involving audio, video, or the web, Meek's Mixed Media can help you. Need individualized attention from a media pro with over five years of professional experience? Click on Hire Us at MeeksMixedMedia.com or send an email to contact at MeeksMixedMedia.com to get started. Meeks Mixed Media. Welcome to now. Welcome back. We're going to keep the comedic theme going here as we honor the anniversary of the death of not only one of the best comedic minds of the past 50 years, but a lover of technology and predictor of how the internet would evolve. But before we get to that, let's listen to some of your first online memories in a segment I like to call Memory Allocation. Downloading memory. Processing. Processing complete. Dispense memory. Hi, it's Bill again. I know you weren't expecting to hear my voice, but as I said last week, a lot of people sent in text submissions for memory allocation, so I'm going to read a few of them for you now. Username FreedomFiDur writes, My earliest online memory is playing Dungeons & Dragons at a friend's house on a BBS. I forget the name of the system. The time frame is a few years before the internet came into being. I'm talking back in the days when you had to manually dial the computer you wanted to connect with. Next up is username Bluebox with two X's. My first ever memory of the internet was in year two in British school system. I had the internet and all its wonder explained to me as a six-year-old and was given the opportunity to use a search engine to find anything. The one computer in the school that had an internet connection had an internet demonstration day for parents, students, visitors, etc. When presented with such vast capability, I said, a blue and red penguin, no results found. Username Endedwigan writes, I'm fairly young, so I don't really remember not having the internet, but I remember my first memory of it. Not sure how that works, but it does. In any case, my father wanted to know the baseball score, and he was in the kitchen, so I was told to go to RedSox.com. I tried everything, but I could not do it. I tried capital R, red, space, capital S, Socks.com, lowercase red, space, lowercase Socks.com, capital red, space, capital Socks.com, red, space, Socks, space, dot, space, com, pretty much everything except RedSox.com. And finally, Car1213 writes, My dad brought home the terminal with that phone patch in 1985. Uh, He dialed in and got the weather on the little green dot matrix readout. I think it was an illuminated dot matrix printout, though it could have been a plain single line LCD. For time reference, we had just got the Apple IIe. Now, if you want to send in a text memory allocation, send it into oldwideweb at gmail.com and we'll read it in a future episode. This week marks the 10th anniversary of the death of Douglas Adams. 
If you don't know who he is, first of all, shame on you. Secondly, he is the accomplished author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. He was also a well-renowned writer on the old series of Doctor Who and a well-known environmentalist. But most of all, and he doesn't get enough credit for this, he was a major proponent of the computer. If you've read the Hitchhiker's trilogy, this comes as no surprise. After all, what is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy but an iPad with Wikipedia loaded up? Two years before his death, he wrote a very insightful article about the internet called How to Stop Worrying and Learn to Love the Internet for the Sunday Times. The most striking bit follows. Because the internet is so new, we still don't really understand what it is. We mistake it for a type of publishing or broadcasting because that's what we're used to. So people complain that there's a lot of rubbish online, or that it's dominated by Americans, or that you can't necessarily trust what you read on the web. Imagine trying to apply any of those criticisms to what you hear on the telephone. Of course, you can't trust what people tell you on the web any more than you can trust what people tell you on megaphones, postcards, or in restaurants. Working out the social politics of who you can trust and why is, quite literally, what a very large part of our brain has evolved to do. For some batty reason, we turn off this natural skepticism when we see things in any medium which requires a lot of work or resources to work in, or in which we can't easily answer back, like newspapers, television, or granite, hence carved in stone. What should concern us is not that we can't take what we read on the internet on trust, of course you can, it's just people talking, but that we ever got into the dangerous habit of believing what we read in the newspapers or saw on the TV, a mistake that no one who has met an actual journalist would ever make. One of the most important things that you learn from the internet is that there is no them out there. It's just an awful lot of us. Douglas Adams really knew what was going on. Long before this essay, he produced a wonderful hour-long documentary called Hyperland that reported on current technological breakthroughs and speculated on humanity's digital future. It stars former Doctor Who Tom Baker as the Agent Tom, basically a live-action clippy from Microsoft Word, and predicts a lot of the concepts that make up the internet today. In honor of Douglas Adams, I've cut out some of the best bits from Hyperland, and I'm going to play them for you now, but I highly encourage checking out the entire thing on YouTube at bit.ly slash Hyperland2. That's the number two. Not only do they deal with the internet, but they deal with multimedia, virtual reality, and they talk quite a bit about Pablo Picasso, which I don't know why. While my instincts are to give Douglas Adams a hearty rest in peace, I don't think he would approve. So I'll simply say that the world is a little less funny and insightful without him, and I really hope he remembered his towel. Now, enjoy a selection of clips from Hyperland. This is a fantasy documentary. The pioneering work shown in Hyperland, however, is very real. Are you tired, Mr. Adams, of the sort of television that just happens at you? That you just sit in front of like a couch potato? That doesn't involve you? Come on, interact with me. Wait a minute. Yes, what is it you want to know? Who the hell are you? Me? Oh, I'm just him. My name is Tom, and I'm your agent. May I ask if you know what that means? You want 15%? It means that I'm here to do your every slightest bidding. 
to fetch and carry for you, to work tirelessly and selflessly on your behalf, always ready, always willing, no job too small or too menial. Are you sure you mean agent? I mean that I'm a software agent. I am merely a simulacrum, an artificial and completely customizable personality, and I only exist as what we call an application in your computer. I have the honor to provide instant access to every piece of information stored digitally anywhere in the world. Any picture or film, any sound, any book, any statistic, any fact, any connection between anything you care to think of, you have only to tell me, and it will be my humble duty to find it for you and to present it to you for your interactive pleasure. Is there anything I can do for you now, Mr. Adams, sir? Well, yes, you can stop being so obsequious for a start. It will be my very great and profound pleasure to be less obsequious, sir, master. I am, as I humbly mentioned to you a moment ago, fully customizable. Look, what is this thing? Does it have a name? It has lots of names. All right. Who invented it? Lots of people invented it. Do you want to hear about a few of them? Uh, maybe. Just a little bit. One of the first was an American government scientist called Vannevar Bush. He thought of it as long ago as 1945. 1945? Then there's Ted Nelson, who developed the idea of hypertext in the 1960s. From the 1970s onwards, there's been a group of people working at what is now called the Media Lab at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Then, in the late 1980s, came the Multimedia Lab in San Francisco. In the early 1990s, Robert Abel developed a pioneering example of multimedia based on Picasso's painting Guernica. Now, Ted Nelson was the person who, back in the 60s, coined... I thought of the idea of hypertext in the fall of 1960, but not under that name. And for years, I tried to explain the idea to people everywhere. And uh, apparently, most people thought I was literally insane. But uh, it seemed so clear to me from the very beginning that writing should not be sequential. Because the problems we all have in writing sequential prose derive from the fact that we're trying to make it all lie down in, in one long string. And if we could only break it up into different chunks that the reader could choose, why then we wouldn't have to decide what goes in and what goes out. We could... So what about... Hello? Where have you gone? Uh, oh, I'm still here. Normally, we agents prefer to hover discreetly in the background. Well, I noticed that when we went off on our ramble... The we... technical term is browse. Can we call it a ramble? We can call it what you like. It's your system. All right. Let's call it an ice lolly. Fine. You were saying we went off on our ice lolly? But when we came back from our ice lolly, we seemed to come back via Ted Nelson. Does it all interconnect? Absolutely. The system is constantly at work in the background, sifting its data for connections. Every time I show you something, I start to line up other things connected to it that you might want to see. For example, think of something. Anything. All right. Um, well, you've got the Atlantic Monthly up there. What about uh, just the Atlantic? Your wish is my command. Yo, what's this? What did you ask for? A live feed from the Atlantic Ocean. Well, you have just encountered the principle of wire fizzwig. Wire fizzwig? What you ask for is what you get. This is a live signal from Mars Sat West, which is currently in geosynchronous orbit over the Atlantic Ocean. You mean 
this is actually live? Yes. Well, yes-ish. It takes ten seconds for the pictures from the satellite to resolve. The feed from the two submersible sources is absolutely live. Well, give or take a quarter of a second. That's astounding. It is rather, isn't it? Ted Nelson has invented a vast system for unifying all of the world's literature. And there's a very specific reason why that system is related to... Well, let him explain it himself. The project I've been working on, which has taken, which really began with my term project in the fall of uh, 1960 and has gradually become something far larger, is uh, now intended as that unifying world. So it will be a storage mechanism and indexing structure by which anyone can add documents to the ever-growing pool and their own style of indexing. This repository needs to be a place we can all reach electronically through the telephone, perhaps through laser beam and satellite, but through various electronic means so that to our computer screens we can bring the material we want as fast as we need it. And this has to be available to everyone everywhere. Now, you're saying that computers that you see structure, I suppose that once any information is stored digitally, you can start to look for shapes yourself in the data. I remember a piece I once read by Kurt Vonnegut. Which I remember it well. I haven't told you what it is yet. But everything is instantly accessible to me. And the moment you mentioned Vonnegut, I scanned through all his published work and found an essay on shapes in stories and assumed that was what you were talking about. Correct? Uh, well, yes. So the point I was trying to make is that since you, since you can find shapes in all kinds of information, if that information is stored digitally, the computer can find them. Exactly. Yes? It seems to me that if people are going to make sense of all this, there's a kind of language that has to be invented. Yes, like films have a grammar that someone who'd never seen one would probably have difficulty following. The jump cut, the sudden juxtaposition of scenes and images, time jumps, zooms, handheld shots, fades, all the sort of things that make a modern movie much richer than just a camera stuck in front of a play. Yes, but that grammar has to evolve gradually, doesn't it? Or people will just get lost. Yes, and a lot of thought has been going into exactly how it should work. Have a look at what the multimedia lab have been up to while I get myself cleaned up. We're trying to explore the area of multimedia. Uh, the idea is, is that in the computing environment, you have images and sounds, and you want to think about what you can do with those. Uh, you want to think about what you can make with them. You want to think about what you can understand with them. And we're finding the rules for doing that. Uh, one of the interesting features of uh, multimedia is that it allows you to put together many different stories. So it's not just one story, but it's really a multiplicity of interwoven um, stories or uh, representations. And it's that multiplicity that makes the difference. The fact that you can really hitchhike from one to another, bounce around and compare different points of view. I think people, as they're watching a drama, will be motivated to find out more about it if it's a good drama what we need to provide for them is a simple way to quickly get to that information if they have the urge to do so uh, and then they'll find their own idiosyncratic path we don't need to prepare that path for them if we're going to spend all our time reinventing ourselves in a computer what's going to happen to families and things i know what you're trying to say when I were a lad, we used to make our own entertainment. We used to walk into living room and switch on the telly ourselves. All right, so what do families do now, then? My, my great fear with it is, is just 
if it removes people too much from from real reality, from physical reality, from nature, etc. In the same way that living in a city does somewhat, there's a lot of fascinating... People do it already. When people go together to go to a movie, they are in a virtual reality. What's different is that it isn't interactive and it isn't under their control. When you go, when you read a novel, if everyone reads a novel, in a way they are sharing a virtual reality. Those then are the prospects for tomorrow. And the outlook for the rest of the week is something we simply don't know at the moment. But for now, I'll say good night. Linear television is closing down. Welcome to a fully packed edition of Progs. First up is a downloadable game for Windows, Mac, and Linux that kind of calls back to the BBS story we did a couple weeks ago. It's called Digital, a Love Story, and the website describes it as a computer mystery romance set five minutes into the future of 1988. So basically, to start off with, uh, you've gotten a modem, and one of your dad's friends sends you a dialer program so you can access a BBS. You start messaging back and forth with a girl, and uh, and then it gets complicated. But it's a really fun game. It's a, it's a quick play, too. I, I played through it in about an hour, and you can find it at bit.ly slash bbsgame. Next up, we have a file that's available through Wikimedia called the Timeline of Web Browsers. Now, basically, it's a big SVG graphic, a big timeline of all of the internet browsers and how they all branched off and came back together. And and it's a really cool way to see how the popularity of different browsers has come and gone and how one browser became another. But, you know, if you if you want your internet history, this is a really good place to go to find out, you know, who was using what browser when and what development teams went on to work on other browsers. For example, it shows how Netscape Navigator eventually forked off and became what we have today as Firefox. Now you can find that at bit.ly slash browser history. And finally, we have this really cool application that Rackspace put up called the Evolution of HTML. Now basically, it's a cool little Flash application uh, where it goes from 1991 to 2010 and shows you all of the major developments in the HTML language. If you are a web designer, web programmer, you're going to find some good information here. At least yeah, you get to know your history a little bit. And it kind of ends on a joke, too. There's a, uh, a future section where it says, nah, so what's next? And then it says, in 2057, the internet will be beamed directly into your brain from the cloud. We strongly recommend ad-blocking software. And you can find the evolution of HTML at bit.ly slash HTML timeline. Welcome back. Now it's time for our old website of the week. Now, this website, it's still constantly updated. It's still pretty 
new, but it was actually founded back in 1999 by Douglas Adams. It's called H2G2, uh, which stands for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and it's the guide to life, the universe, and everything written by you. Uh, like I said, it was founded in 1999 by Douglas Adams. Uh, it took over by the BBC in 2001, and it's, it's, it's a bit like Wikipedia, but more in the spirit of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, from the books. Unfortunately, it's not going to be around for much longer. In January of this year, the BBC announced that they'd be disposing of H2G2 due to the $34 million budget cut to BBC Online's budget. But for now, you can still get there and still check it out. You can find it at bbc.co.uk slash H2G2. Thank you so much for joining me for Episode 7. I wanted to point out a brand new way to get the podcast. Now, if you go to podcaster without an E, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-R, podcaster.com slash Old Wide Web, you can use the podcaster app to bookmark where you are in the podcast between the website and all iOS devices. No app install required, just add an icon to your home screen and you're good to go. You can start listening on your computer and continue while you're on the go where you left off. Now, again, you can find this at podcasterwithoutthee.com slash Old Wide Web. You can get all our past episodes at oldwideweb.org or by searching for Old Wide Web in iTunes. You'd like to be on the podcast, wouldn't you? If you want to, go ahead and shoot us a one to two minute audio file with your earliest online memory at oldwideweb at gmail.com and I'll use you in memory allocation. As we did in this episode, I'm collecting text entries, too, and once I get enough of those, we'll do another episode with all text user submissions. You can send those to oldwideweb at gmail.com as well. And any story ideas, feedback, suggestions can also be sent to oldwideweb at gmail.com, or you can use the contact form on the website. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at oldwidewebpod, and you can follow me. My handle's at Bill Meeks. Now, as long as Mr. T doesn't eat my balls, I'll be back here with you next week on the Old Wide Web. (laughs) 